Galatians chapter 1. The history of the church is the story of the battle for the gospel. In every generation of Christians, there are new battles and old battles emerge again for the integrity of the gospel. And by the integrity of the gospel, I mean the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it is nothing new that we in our generation should face what Paul and the apostles faced in their generation, that they had to fight for the truth of the gospel, to maintain gospel integrity in the church. I want to begin this morning by telling you the story of Saul of Tarsus and Paul the Apostle, they're the same person, Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, and the church of Galatia in particular, and the churches in general in relation to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is probably the most famous Christian in history. He began his career as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a man who sought to keep all the commandments of God blamelessly, and he was a man of great religious zeal. In fact, as a Pharisee, he made it his chief goal to harass, persecute, and imprison Christians, even kill Christians. He was present at the martyrdom of Stephen He was the most extreme enemy of the newly born church in Jerusalem. And so once Christ had died and rose and ascended and poured out the Holy Spirit and formed the church, Satan began to energize Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee, as the great enemy of the church. In fact, in chapter 1 here of Galatians, in verse 13, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But God sovereignly ordained to save Saul of Tarsus and make him into the greatest apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. While he was traveling to Damascus with letters from the high priest of of Jerusalem, written to the synagogues that were in the north, These letters gave him authority to capture and prosecute those who belonged to the way, which was a name for the Christian faith, probably from Jesus' own words when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Christianity were those who belonged to the way. And so he was on his way to persecute believers But God stopped this Pharisee in his tracks. As he drew near to the city of Damascus, a light from heaven that was brighter than the sun knocked him off his donkey. And suddenly he heard a voice speaking to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And then the Lord Jesus told him, rise and enter the city. You will be told what you are to do. And Saul was blinded by this vision of light, the appearance of the glory of Christ to him. 
And he had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus. For three days he could not see. He fasted and he was praying, the Bible says. Then the Lord spoke to a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. And he told him to go to Saul to lay hands on him so he could receive his sight. But Ananias was reluctant. This is what Ananias said to the Lord. He said, Lord, I have heard about this man. (laughs) I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord encouraged Ananias by telling him his plan for the apostle Paul. This should just encourage you so much in what God saves you from and what he saves you to. And so he he speaks to Ananias and he says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And after Ananias had restored Paul's sight by laying hands on him, he immediately proclaimed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, to the Jewish people in that city. Now, after this happened, the whole focus of Paul's life changed. He he was still a man of great zeal for God. But before he had thought it was his mission to kill Christians, now he was a missionary for Christ, a proclaimer of the gospel. The gospel motivated everything that he did and everything that he wrote. In fact, the gospel appears in the very first paragraph of the letter to the Galatians. So if you look here at the first, first few verses, the scripture says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, here it is. Who gave himself for our sins. So here's the doctrine of substitution. That he gave himself for our sins. Here is the doctrine of grace. And he's already said grace and peace. So the doctrine of grace. And he gives himself For our sins to deliver us, there is the rescue, the redemption from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, though it took a while for the church to be persuaded that Paul had really been converted because you know that one of the ways that he used to find Christians was to give a Christian greeting. He'd go in a house and he would greet them as a Christian. Hello, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus. And then they would say, oh, hello, we're brothers and sisters. And then he would arrest them, you know, and he would bind them, whether they were men or women, it didn't matter, old or young, that was his way. And so it was a little hard to believe at first that Paul had been saved. But eventually, they understood that Saul of Tarsus was a changed man. In fact, Paul wrote about his transition from persecutor to proclaimer in this first chapter as well. If you look at verses 22 through 24 of chapter 1, 
He says, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Now in Acts chapter 13 and 14, Luke writes that the church in Antioch laid hands on Saul and Barnabas with John Mark and sent them on their first missionary journey into Asia Minor. This journey took them in the southern parts of what is now known as Turkey and to a Roman province that is known as Galatia. All right? So they were traveling through a Roman province by the name of Galatia. And they evangelized and planted churches in many, many of the cities. Antioch of Pisidia, Paphos, Pergia, Antilia, Pamphylia, Iconium, Lystri, Derbe, and many others. And as they were returning from their first evangelistic tour, they visited all those churches again and encouraged them in the faith. And finally, they they set sail from a port there to the south back to Antioch in the Holy Land. And there they reported to those that had sent them out to the work of the gospel. But already, at this moment, Acts 13, 14, Satan is planting false brothers in the church. And I won't have you turn there, but Acts chapter 15 So we are, in Acts chapter 15, we're at 48, A.D. 48. And Paul's letters probably happened right during that period of time. And Acts 15 opens with this statement. But some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised. And if you read on, you'll see they also were teaching that you need to keep the law, keep the festivals, keep the Sabbath, all these things instead. Now, let me just say here at the beginning, what the gospel has done for us has shown us how Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ is our circumcision. Because we are separated unto God through Him. And Christ is our Sabbath because we rest in Him. We still have a Lord's Day, but uh, understand the Sabbath law. We are not under Sabbath law. And so, uh, in so many ways, the gospel had developed and shown how Christ had fulfilled all these things. But because of these men, Paul writes this letter to Galatians to defend the church from those who would corrupt the message of the gospel and do spiritual harm to the Lord's people. Now, Paul calls these people, he actually coins the phrase Judaizers. Uh, You can see it in chapter 2 and verse 14 when Paul is rebuking Peter, who has fallen also under the influence of some people from Jerusalem, and is not acting in, he knows better than he is acting, and he's acting in contradiction to the gospel. And so Luther used to love to point this out because he says, here Paul rebukes the first pope. And so, uh, verse 14, 
of chapter 2. But when I saw that their conduct was, conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now at the, the closing part of this verse here, the verb that says, force Gentiles to live like Jews. Forced to live like Jew. Forced to live like a Jew. That's the word where we get Judaizers. It was the earliest of the Christian heresies. It was an attempt to add to the gospel of Christ the keeping of the law and circumcision uh, as a means of salvation. So throughout the letter here, Paul talks about those individuals who are in opposition to the gospel, and he is deeply concerned. The tone of this letter is fatherly, but it is corrective. It is even blunt at times as he rebukes these young believers for allowing themselves to be carried away by false teaching. And that brings me to my second point. So my first point was the background, the story of Paul and the churches of Galatia. Point two, there is only one gospel. There is only one gospel. So if you look at chapter one here in verse six, Galatians one and verse six, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. This is serious stuff. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul was seeking to save these young congregations from apostasy. A group of false teachers, just as those had come up from Jerusalem to Antioch that opposed Paul there in Acts chapter 15, and were seeking to compromise the gospel in the church at Antioch, some had also gone back to those new churches in Galatia where Paul had just preached the gospel and had established those congregations. They were teaching a different gospel. They taught that you could be saved by, yes, trust in Christ's death and resurrection, but they added you must also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Now, the gospel is the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for I delivered unto you that which I also received, he says, uh, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel, plainly and clearly. And if you add one thing, yes, yes, believe in Christ, but 
Yes, you, you have to be baptized too in order to be saved. And we believe in Christian baptism, but it is Christian baptism as practiced in the New Testament believers' baptism. It's not that baptism is what saves. We do not teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. And they, they may add circumcision, add one thing to it. And you have to keep this certain laws and festivals and dietary uh, disciplines in order to be saved. If you add one thing to the gospel, you have destroyed the gospel. You have distorted the gospel. And so they taught Christ's death and resurrection plus the law. And the theme of this letter to the Galatians churches is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to God's glory alone. To be justified means to be declared righteous before the tribunal of God. And that leads me to my my third point. The message of the one gospel is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. If if you haven't got that, I think it's over here. Uh, You can see the... uh, Latin mottos that speak to each of these things. They're on the wall. Justification is the legal act of God, a divine judicial pronouncement declaring a sinner to be righteous in God's sight. It's not a process that takes place over a period of time like sanctification. It's a sovereign judicial verdict that says, though I am still a sinner, that's right, though I am still a sinner, I am declared righteous in Christ. It is legal, it is instantaneous, and it is external. It's not something, there is a work that God does within us that's called regeneration, and, and the Lord has these works that we can study as well, but this work of justification is external to us. It is not something that God does in me, but that he does for me. When God saves, he accomplishes a work for the believing sinner called justification. He declares the sinner to be righteous. It's a legal right, a legal work, and it changes your status before God from condemned to righteous. And that's the doctrine of justification. These Judaizing apostates taught the Galatian Christians that salvation could only be accomplished by faith plus keeping the law. It's an old heresy taught for generations by the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders that salvation is merited by keeping the law. We earn our salvation by the things that we do. It's also known as works righteousness. Now listen carefully. In our justification by faith alone, God imputes or credits the perfect law-keeping or the obedience of Jesus to sinners, and he transfers the sinner's guilt and penalty for his violation of the law to Christ. This is the great exchange. There is no amount of effort on the part of a sinful man, no amount of obedience that can secure our justification. 
So a person is justified by faith alone. That is, trusting, believing in what Christ has done alone. We do not contribute our good works. And this is why justification is by grace alone. God takes the initiative in salvation, not man. Moreover, this is why justification and ultimately your salvation is by Christ alone. Jesus alone is the one who saves us. Our salvation is not a joint venture that I did my part and God did his part. Paul relentlessly hammers out this truth in the book of Galatians. So understand that if we add anything to the gospel of faith alone and Christ alone, we distort and we destroy the gospel. As soon as we say that I'm responsible for my salvation in any way, we twist the good news into a man-centered message. We cannot add circumcision or baptism to the gospel without corrupting it because Christ is the Savior, not us. This is why God alone gets the glory for saving us, because He he has done it all. Grace means that God saves apart from human effort, apart from our moral values, apart from our religious activity. God saves apart from human merit, apart from human cooperation, because God does the saving. And listen, God saves the ungodly. God does not save good people. Good people can't be saved. Doesn't that shock you? Good people can't be saved because they haven't realized they're not good yet. And so when we realize, when God opens our eyes to see our sinfulness, then we can be saved only when we understand that I am not a good person. Galatians 2.16, he says, Yet we know, and again, this is part of the conversation he had with Peter. He says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Are you looking at it with me? A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I don't know if you see how much repetition Paul gives us there in order to make his point. And maybe you're already saying, well, it seems like you're doing that too. Yeah, that's right, and I don't apologize for it. Paul is rebuking Peter for behaving hypocritically and contradictory to the gospel. Peter had fallen under the influence of a group of Jewish people who came from James in Jerusalem, and he had stopped eating with the Gentiles. Before they came, he had been sitting down and eating with the Gentiles and eating Gentile food. He wasn't following the dietary laws because he knew that the gospel teaches that we are not under the judgment of dietary laws. Those things have been abrogated. He begins to fall under their spell and he separates from the Gentiles. And because he was an apostle, others were influenced, even sweet Barnabas. Isn't that amazing? And listen, if Peter, an apostle, could be influenced to live in a way that contradicts the gospel, don't you think it's possible that we ourselves might be influenced to live 
in a way that is hypocritical. Timothy George says, what was so insidious in the separation of Peter and his associates was the fact that they were acting as if their Gentile Christian brothers and sisters were still sinners, while they, because of their ritual purity and obedience to the law, stood in a different, more favorable relationship to God. But the good news of salvation by grace alone means that in Christ Jesus, there is no difference between ethnicities. Paul says that directly in Romans chapter 3. Therefore, he says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We are all sinners in Adam, and we are all in need of grace for salvation. Consequently, believers should exercise no, should observe no distinction of race in fellowship. In chapter 3, Paul builds this argument even further by declaring that God's wrath and the curse of the law is because people depend on works of the law to justify them. And that brings me to number four. The law cannot save, but condemns all humanity as guilty sinners. The law cannot save, but condemns all humanity as guilty sinners. Look in chapter 3 and verses 10 through 14. Chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. We read this earlier. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one... Let me just point this out. Look, so in verse 10, you should note those words, everyone, that word everyone. Cursed be everyone, in verse 10 that does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. And then in verse 11, you may want to underscore the words, no one. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now to be under God's curse means to be under God's wrath. To be condemned. And who are the cursed? Verse 10, everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them. You see, that everyone is every, everyone. (laughs) That's all of us. We are all under the covenant of works. We are obligated for righteousness sake to, to do everything God commands, to do his whole will. But no one can do it. The law condemns All humanity as guilty sinners. It's universal. People think they're saved by their own goodness. But the law says there's none good, no, not one. The law says there's none righteous, not even one. The law says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The law says the soul that sins, it shall die. Now, if you want to know how 
deep in our psyche, in, in our nature it is to justify ourselves. Let me just tell you a little story. This is a story about my dad. Um, for a time, I really don't know the circumstances, he and his mom lived with pastor for just a short time. But at any rate, uh, they lived and they attended the little church that he was pastoring. And, and there, um, one day they had a lesson about the thief on the cross who, who said to the Lord Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So in this lesson, the teacher is using a curriculum that she's explaining the story of this thief to whom Jesus promised paradise. And this is what they said. They said, as a little boy, he lost his parents and he wanted to be a good boy. But being without anyone to protect him, he was taken by some evil people and they made him steal. And even though whenever he could be kind and help people, he would, nevertheless, he was under the the power, a captive, a, a servant to these individuals who involved him in his evil schemes. And this was his life, his whole life uh, for a long time because he was, he was pressured to do these things. And one day uh, he was participating in one of their evil schemes, not by choice, but because he was made to, and he got arrested for being a thief. And he was found guilty, and he was condemned to be crucified. And there he is hanging on the cross, And Jesus welcomes him into paradise because he really is a good boy. He really is a good guy. And because he's been good, then... Now, this fiction is brought to you by the Judaizers. (laughs) This this fiction, Judaizers Bible Curriculum, uh, if you want to order that. I, I don't know who published such a story, but they made up this whole story because they needed it to fit with the idea that we are good and God saves us if we are good. You realize how how foolish and awful it is to teach a false gospel. Now friends, this is a lie from the devil and it takes so many to hell through the pillar of human religion and it's called again works righteousness. How are we saved? Well, look here again at Galatians chapter 3 and notice verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. And then he gives the quotation from Leviticus. He's very clear that all who have transgressed the law at any point are under a curse. This is universally true because he says everyone, everyone. And then he mentions, as I pointed out earlier, no one. Everyone is guilty of breaking God's law and no one is justified by keeping God's law. God's law condemns everyone. God's law justifies no one. And then Paul quotes from Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by Faith, this is the principle of the gospel. And, and what we understand about Habakkuk 2.4, and incidentally, I preached probably 20 years ago, maybe four or five sermons from Habakkuk 2.4, 
And I remember dear Betty Holsenbeck, she said, if we don't know what justification is now, we never will. (laughs) But I need to preach it to every congregation that gathers in this church because we have lots of people here that did not hear those messages. And when Paul is quoting this and he quotes Habakkuk 2-4, we we understand that Habakkuk was alluding to the faith of Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed God and it was counted, credited to him for righteousness. It is faith, faith alone that saves And so salvation is by grace, not by works, and it is by faith, not by the law. In verse 13, we see that Christ is the agent of salvation. He redeemed us. He purchased us from the curse of the law by bearing our curse. He became a curse for us, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we are all under the curse of the law because we have all broken the law. The law is not a way of salvation. God gave the law as a tutor or a guardian to show us our sinfulness and lead us to the sinless Son of God, who died in our place and took our curse. Listen carefully. The ground and foundation of our righteousness before God is the obedience of Jesus Christ. God saves us by putting our sins upon Jesus Christ and putting His obedience upon us. You cannot be saved by your obedience. Only the perfect obedience of the Son of God can save you. Only His suffering can satisfy the wrath of God, can absorb the curse of God. Only His righteousness can cover you and make you acceptable before our holy God. So verse 14 declares that instead of being cursed, we are blessed. That in Christ, through faith in Christ, we are We are no longer cursed, but we are blessed. And as he describes the blessing of Abraham, he tells us that the blessing is, or at least a large part of it, is that we are given the Spirit of God, the promised Spirit of God, so that God the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, and we are in a spiritual union with the Trinity. We are, are in union and communion with God the Father and God the Son, through God the Holy Spirit. The life of God in the soul of man. We're united to Christ by faith. And and this is what happens. Remember I told you the great exchange. Everything that was mine, which is all my sin and wickedness, became his. He owned it. And everything that was his, his righteousness. All that became mine. And this union with God through Christ then becomes not only the basis of our salvation, but it also becomes the reason and basis for our Christian life. If you look back in Galatians chapter 2, the end of chapter 2 and verse 20, look what he says, I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Christ who obeyed the law for me so that 
His righteousness was credited to me, now lives in me, and I am enabled by His power to obey God's commands. That is, that is the power of the Christian life. See, do you see what Paul says there? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And I think he means faith in the Son of God. Faith that is around and about and attaches itself to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So as I turn from the law as a means of salvation, as I turn to Christ in his substitutionary death and resurrection, I receive the the blessing of the promised Holy Spirit. I'm brought into union and communion with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. You say, what is a Christian? It's someone in whom Christ lives. Christ lives in me. Number four, the church must fight for the integrity of the gospel. The church must fight for the integrity of the gospel. And the integrity of the gospel, remember, is the glory of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is true in every generation. The church must fight for the integrity of the gospel in every generation. Like the church in Galatia, this congregation also faces challenges from false gospels. Do you know why some of us live with a sense of self-loathing and condemnation even though you have confessed your sins? It's because that I still think that my righteousness is the basis on which God loves me, that God accepts me. And if I have failed, I believe that he's angry with me and mad with me. But understand, if you do not read your Bible for the next decade and you don't pray, Obviously, that's not the behavior of a Christian, but let's just say you don't do it. In Christ, listen, God does not love you or justify you or accept you any less or any more based on the fact that you didn't do that. And suppose that over the next decade, you read your Bible two hours every day and you pray three hours every day because you are such a fervent Christian and and you you devote yourself in this way. Well, listen, God doesn't justify you, approve of you, accept you. His attitude toward you is not more favorable because you have done those things. God's favor upon us is because of Christ. He loves his son. He delights in what his son accomplished on the cross and in his righteousness. And that righteousness has been given to us. And so God's attitude toward you does not change by what you do or don't do every day. But some of us live with that sense of self-loathing and condemnation because we somehow think it is still what I do that is the key to God's love and acceptance of me. Listen, 
to the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 60. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, in in spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me, that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and have not kept any one of them, and that I'm still ever prone to all that evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of perfect expiation, the perfect expiation of Christ, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me, if only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. Now, brothers and sisters, we need to believe the gospel. And if you will keep your eyes fixed on Christ, you will find that as you look to the one who obeyed the law, the one who died and rose again, the one who took the penalty of your sin, in whom you have forgiveness of sins. If you keep your eyes and you continually remind and rehearse the truth of the gospel uh, before your faith and you embrace it and believe it, then you will make progress in your Christian life. You will find you grow in your sanctification because not only does the gospel save us, but it's also the key uh, of sanctifying us. It is Christ in us, the power of Christ in the believer. It is not you. It is Christ. And so let the gospel fill you with admiration for the grace that is given to us in Christ. It is abundant and amazing. And God does not judge me by my ability to keep the law. I do not gain access to God through my ability to keep His commandments. It is through the grace of Christ. And while we may say more, while we could nuance that even more, I want to tell you, we need to believe this. And it's also why the gospel of self-esteem is so heinous in God's eyes. The whole world is is telling you a false gospel. Believe in yourself. Okay, say it with me. I love me. I love me. No, that's the problem. (laughs) The gospel confronts us with our self-centeredness. In fact, as it teaches us about our sinfulness, we realize that sin is self-centeredness. Luther said it's being twisted in upon ourselves. So our focus is on ourselves. We love, worship, and serve the idol of self. We don't need more self-esteem. If we are caught up with, oh, I'm just such a failure in all these ways, and you don't need somebody. What you need to realize is that you're a sinner and you're thinking about yourself. And now look to the Christ. Look to Christ who is the only one who has kept God's law, who is worthy, and, and believe in him and live by the power of Christ in you. The gospel of self-esteem is a false gospel. When we hear the true gospel, it confronts us. Let me close with these words written by an Anglican pastor, Augustus Toplady. 
And this is what he says. You've heard the song, Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hand can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die.